You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and it's so good uh, to be with you this morning. We are starting a brand new teaching series called Gardens. All of redemption history can be told through the story of four gardens, and that's what we're going to be looking at through the next four weeks, and uh, I think plant imagery, agriculture, garden imagery, uh, if you know me, it is rich within the biblical story. We use it in our discipleship process. I love talking about plants, and uh, so much so, uh, this is not a new thing for me, Uh, 10 years ago, when I first felt a clear calling, a sense of a calling from God to plant a church, I did uh, what any, anyone who has that calling did, is you start thinking about logos, right? <laughs> and you start thinking of like, what am I going to call it, and having all this stuff. And uh, there's literally a Word document on my computer with, uh, that's titled The Garden. That's the name I came up with, and it didn't work out, obviously, because <laughs> our, our church name is Hill City Church. But... Uh, but, but anyways, there's, there's this, this, this deep sense uh, that the Garden of Eden that we're talking about today, it teaches us and it echoes all throughout the rest of the biblical story. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, we're going to cruise through Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to bounce around. If you have a Bible, you can open it. Uh, try to keep up if you want. Uh, you can also read the verses on the screen. I would encourage you, whatever you do, if you've never really kind of taken time and read through these first three chapters, so much of the rest of the Bible won't make sense if you don't have the Garden of Eden really internalized. Uh, and so for us, what the Garden of Eden teaches us is the, thi- the way things are now is not how they were created to be. It's the beginning of the story. And so much of our understanding, even of the gospel as it's preached uh, so much of the time, it begins with guilt or it begins with sin. And the story doesn't actually begin there. It begins in the, in the garden. And today we're going to be looking at these five just huge questions, questions like who is God, who are we, what is our purpose, what went wrong, and is there hope? Are those big questions? You better believe it. Those questions are the human experience. You might be here today, and I don't know what kind of faith background you have, but I would guess that maybe there's someone here today who maybe you didn't grow up in the church. And maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a religious person, right? Maybe you're not a person of faith yet. My guess is you've asked some of those questions before. Those are questions that people inside and outside of the church, those are just human experience kind of questions. We're going to try to answer those questions today from Genesis 1 through 3. And yet, whenever we look at the early chapters of Genesis, we have other questions, don't we? We might call them academic or intellectual kind of questions. Is the earth 6,000 years old or 4.54 billion years old? Are Adam and Eve, you know, historical people who really existed or are they characters in a story? Did they have belly buttons? (laughs) The important, you know, like the really important 
questions. And I don't want to make light of those kind of questions because I recognize for so many people those are maybe even barriers to understanding the gospel or to coming to Jesus. And yet, what I want to say is let's not miss out on the important questions that Genesis is actually trying to deal with about the human experience and our relationship with God because of our post-enlightenment, naturalistic, you know, modern worldview where we get hung up on the academic questions that I would say Genesis is not even maybe really trying to answer. And in this room, I would guess there are people who kind of maybe lean one of two ways. Maybe some of you would lean uh, towards, you know, kind of really heavily relying for, for your worldview and, the, you know, creation and how we all got here. Lean more towards the scientific explanation of those things. And some of you would lean more towards on just kind of the, the literal scriptural view. You know, it, it is how it says it is in the early chapters of Genesis. That is beyond the span of, of what I'm trying to talk about today. But two quick things kind of a little bit of tension and a challenge on both sides. Uh, for those of you who maybe would just say, just, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? God knows exactly how the universe came to be, does he not? He knows, right? He's responsible for it. And yet, that does not necessarily mean that Genesis was written as a science textbook to try and explain the intricacies of cosmological things. And so for, just to, for us to understand, right, at what Genesis is and how to read it well, we can acknowledge both God does understand how the universe came into existence. He's responsible for it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to learn, you know, scientific reasoning or processes from Genesis. So that's a little bit of, just a little bit of challenge there. On the other side, if you have a difficult time maybe acknowledging that God created everything, I would just ask you this question. Is your perspective of God that he is too small to create the universe? I mean, however you slice it, right? Young earth creation, old earth creation, gap theory, uh, theistic evolution. I have a whole talk on faith and science from a few years ago. If you really try hard, you can find it on our podcast. But I would just ask you that question because it's a big deal, that we give God credit for what he does. It's a huge deal. And if your perspective, A.W. Tozer, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if your picture of God is too small that he could speak and a planet is formed, or even thousands of planets are formed, or even galaxies are formed, I would, I would ask you, is your God too small to recreate the universe one day? Is your God too small to raise not just Jesus Christ from the dead, but to raise every living person who ever lived in human history from the grave? Those are central things that will happen in the future, and we have all these problems with what God has done in the past. We have to be cautious in, in kind of shrinking God down to a box that we can understand him in. Does that make sense? So just like, I'm not, I'm not gonna give you any answers, but just a little challenge on both sides. Let's get into it. Question number one, who is God? Who is God? Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. If you're there, turn with me. Opening verse. The very first thing you say when you're giving a speech. It's one of the most important things. In the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth. The basic, the, the, the most foundational, basic understanding of who God is is God is the 
Creator with a capital C. God is not just creative, although God is very creative. I mean, think of a platypus, right? Like, that's creative. <laughs> he is the creator. Before everything that we see, hear, touch, feel, taste, smell, before all of that, God existed. You might shorten Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, dot, dot, dot. That should humble us and bring us to our knees and our understanding of the God that we worship. God pre-existed. And contrary to other ancient creation uh, stories and myths, right, Enuma Elish, there's there's a host of them in the ancient uh, world. Uh, In all of those, there's kind of a bunch of gods, and they fight each other, and the top god ends up being the one who gets credited for uh, creating. That's not how it works. God doesn't have to slay a primordial monster in order to create. He doesn't have to fight with a pantheon of other gods to become the top god. God in and of himself is sufficient. And he speaks. He doesn't have to get in a battle and earn his place. He is the creator. He speaks. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And he doesn't create out of, once again, contrary to these ancient myths, he doesn't create out of uh, an insufficiency because he needs slaves, he doesn't need humans, right? He actually creates out of an overflow, an an overflow of his love. So that there would be more and more beings who could experience his glory and his goodness and his love. Not because he was bored and he needed to watch what we're gonna do, right? And and see how everything was gonna shake out. God is fully sufficient, he's pre-existent, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's the first thing we learn. Second thing, Genesis 131, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very, everyone say? Good. Good. It's very good. If you read Genesis 1, what you're going to see is each day, all six days of creation, God creates, like there's a pattern, right? It's poetic in a way. And then he looks out at what he created, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And at the end, it says he looks at everything he created, and it was very, very good. What does that tell us about God? God is, God is good. He's good. He loves you. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't mess things up. Uh, when you, when, we can say it like this, when you see something beautiful in creation, when you see a sunset, you might look at a sunset or someone from kind of a purely naturalistic worldview, right, that says there is no God and, and, and it's just all chance. You might look at a sunset in that worldview and you might say, what are the odds? You can still appreciate there's a beauty in that sunset, but you say, what are the odds? I mean, the clouds and the wet, that's just like weather, right? You know, it's crazy that the sun and the beauty and the colors, it's almost like there's a painting there, but I know it's not because it's just chance, right? You can look at something like that, you can say, what are the odds? Or you can say, what a great God. God is good. He is responsible and he deserves credit for the goodness that we experience in this world. And we're gonna talk about what went wrong here, here in a few minutes, right? And so I know there's brokenness, I know there's sin, I know there's all of that stuff, but even still, there is goodness in the world. And we see God's goodness on display. 
third thing that we see uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, if you're there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What this teaches us about God is God is holy. God is holy. Uh, The word holy means to be set apart or distinct. And so God creates mankind, and and one of the first things he does is he makes a rule for them. You can say God makes the rules. God decides right and wrong. It's It's his job because he's the creator, so he gets to write the default operating manual for his creation. And so this idea that God is the creator and we are creation, that puts us in our place. He is holy. And even though he creates mankind as good, he still is the one who decides what continues to be good. He's, another way to say it is he's in charge, or we might say it like this, he's king. He's king, makes the rules. John Stott says it like this, God's provision for Adam and Eve was perfect. They lacked nothing in the Garden of Eden. God knew that their happiness lay in enjoying what he had permitted, get this, and abstaining from what he prohibited. His permission and his prohibition both issued from his sheer goodness and love. And so when God makes that that initial rule, eat from any of the trees except this one, there's a boundary, right? Don't cross that boundary. What God is doing in both of those things, both in his permission, all those other trees are delicious, right? Eat from those, like in his permission and in his prohibition, what he's doing is he's demonstrating his holiness, but he's also teaching us that if you want to truly find happiness, isn't that another one of those questions that people are asking? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. What's truly gonna satisfy my soul? It actually comes from living life according to God's original design, according to God's rule, which includes his rules, living life according to God's authority and following him. There's a lot more that could be said about who God is, but those are three, I would think, three of the most important things that we see in Genesis. Who are we? Who are we is the next question as human beings. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does this teach us? We are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. That is so essential for us to understand. Uh, We're not just another animal, right? We're not, just, we're not just the process of, of animals. We have intrinsic value and worth. I think about God forming Adam out of the dust of the ground and him breathing the breath of life. Imagine that, right? And Adam opens his eyes, and the first thing he sees is the face of the creator. We have this intrinsic value. All human beings, not just you and me, people who look different than you, People who have disabilities, people who, uh, people who are, uh, don't make a lot of money, people who are still in the womb, right? Like this, this has a huge implication for how we view humanity with value and dignity and worth. And that idea of being an image of something is actually the word where, where you would get later on idols, right? And that's why you're not supposed to make idols, 
Because humans are supposed to be, not, not idols that we worship, but humans are supposed to be these snapshots of who God is. We're supposed to represent God in his created world. John Mark Comer has a book called Garden City. And in that book, it's really all about the story being told through the lens of the gardens. But he says this, the imagery of humanity's relationship to God is not of puppets on a string with God up in heaven playing around. Right? Like God is some toddler with little action figures and like, I wonder what they're going to do. Right? Rather... It's of partners, God's representatives on earth, kings and queens ruling over his world. We're going to get more into the ruling over his world in just a moment. But kings and queens, if you are human, you have royal blood coursing through your veins as an image bearer of the creator of the universe. And so does your neighbor. And so does the person who voted differently than you. And so does the person who you can't stand, right? So think about the the implications of just understanding the imago Dei, the image of God, and this idea that we're not just puppets of God, we're partners with God. I mean, he he, he elevates humans. We are the crowning jewel of his creation, and I don't care how beautiful the sunset is. When I look into my youngest daughter's eyes, there's nothing that compares to that, right? Like the, like the most beautiful, as you see into another human being's soul, you know there's something there. There's this untapped potential there. This, and this closeness of uh, a relationship with God is unheard of. It's unheard of. That God would create you, pour out his love on you, and then instead of treating you like a slave, instead of treating you like a puppet on a string, that you are a partner with him. That you are a king or a queen in the kingdom of heaven. The next thing we know about uh, us, who we are, in Genesis 2.18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And God goes through uh, this whole thing with Adam, right? You know, he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed breath of life. And he wants Adam to kind of have this uh, self-discovery of, is it good for me to be alone? So he asks Adam, you know, go name all the animals and see if there's one that will make a helper, you know, a good companion, a good equal companion for you. And he goes through and the dog gets close because it's like... Come on, man's best friend. And, you know, all of a sudden, it's like, but no, there's no one, you know, no, no animal will be a good companion for me. And he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes a rib out of him, and he fashions a woman out of the man. And then Adam wakes up, and he's, you know, it's that beautiful, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. What this teaches us is we are made for relationship. The first thing that is not good in creation. Not that God made a mistake, but the first thing that is not good is uh, humans to be isolated from one another. And this is significant because sometimes even in the worship songs, and I know they're, they're well-intentioned, in, right? All I need is you. There's kind of that idea that if it was just me alone in the world and I had God, that would be enough. But that's actually, theologically speaking, not true because Adam had God, but he didn't have other people. 
And so this speaks to the fact that we are created by God. So Genesis 1 through 3, teaching us the original design for creation is we are created for relationship. Something is wrong when we feel loneliness. We know that. Solitary confinement is a punishment in prisons, right? Because we are made to be in relationship. Some of the deepest heartaches and breaks that we have as human beings is, is when we lose a loved one, or also when there's a loved one who's still alive and the relationship has been severed with that person. Aren't those some of the deepest hurts that we feel as, as human beings? That's because that's one of the deepest meanings of what it means to be a human, is to be in relationship with other people. And we have a loneliness epidemic in Gen Z. It's one of the greatest problems. The, the tragic irony is we're more connected with technology than ever before, and yet people are feel, younger people are feeling lonelier than any generation that has come before them. How is that happening? You know, the last few years, social distancing, isolation, mental health problems, suicide, skyrocketing, all of that sort of stuff. And all of that to say... We don't just want to run church services. We want to be a community of God, a living, active community of God. And when we say every single week, please fill out a connect card, it's not just because we want to spam your email and let you know all the events going on. We want to connect with you. And I hope and I pray that this would be a community that you feel like you can plug into and be in relationship with. More than just even on a Sunday morning in life groups, Bible studies and prayer groups and mentorships in deep, lifelong, lasting friendships here. And I would just ask you to pray on what the Holy Spirit, what step the Holy Spirit is calling you to take to engage in relationship. That's who we are. We're made in God's image and we are made for relationship. Next question, what is our purpose? What's our purpose? This is a question that's, that, that every human, single human being asks. Is there a meaning to life? Is there a purpose to life? Why am I here? Those are all different ways asking what is our purpose. Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I love some translations. So they say every creeping thing that creeps, right? Every creepy animal. No, no. Uh, so there's a, few, there's a few things here. This is called the cultural mandate, and there's some three really significant things that I want you to know about our purpose. The first thing is very simple, to fill the earth, to fill the earth. At a basic level, what that means is to have children and make, you know, make more people. Now think about this for a moment. We kind of take this for granted because this is just how the world works, but if, if God created the first two human beings... And then for there, to get, for there to be more human beings, he doesn't do that. He gives that responsibility to them. Do you see that? This is getting into that. What, what God is doing is he's, he's giving us the creative power of making more human beings and filling the earth. This is like mind-blowing when you think about it. That when, when a family comes together and you, there's children being born, it's like the creative power of God is what is equipping you and enabling you to do that. This is like preposterous if you think about it. And so in a physical sense, one of the, one of the core purposes of human beings is to fill the earth with, with people, right? And God does that through the family, husband and wife, this beautiful covenant relationship. 
having children. And I just want to speak to you for just a moment. If you have kids, if you have little kids, especially if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, that's not just like a phase of your life and something that you do. That's like core how God designed you to function. And I just want to speak to you and say that is, that is maybe one of the most important things that you will ever do. And I know it's tiring when your kids are still jet-lagged two weeks after you took a vacation in Australia. <laughs> I know. I know there's times in the temper tantrums. I know. Teenagers. I did youth ministry for years. I get it. Right? But that is, that's not just like a few years of your life. That is like God's God's designed for human beings to fill the earth with more image bearers, to create more relationships, to give more glory to God, and for more people for God to shower his love upon. Now, now that being said, Jesus was single and celibate, and he had a full, you know, full human existence, right? And so if you're single and you never get married, or if you're married, you never have kids, and that sort of thing, that, that's not to downplay God's calling on your life. But I just want to speak to the parents for, for just a moment, just say, like, that's really ingrained in, in God's goodness. Now, that being said, in a physical sense, fill the earth means make more, make more people. In the spiritual sense, the Great Commission really is teaching us that all of us have the responsibility to make more, not necessarily physical people, but to make more children of God in the sense of discipleship. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we're supposed to go into, you get this? The whole earth, make more, there's multiplication, there's make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, according to Jesus, is a new birth to be born of the water and spirit, right? Are you seeing this? This is, this is family language and teaching them to obey and observe everything that I've commanded you. What do we do with our children? We teach them in the wisdom and in the instruction of the Lord. We're supposed to do that even if you don't have kids, to disciple people. To get, this is for all of us, every single believer. I, I believe every disciple is responsible with the great commission to go and make more disciples. And I would just ask you, how are you doing that? Right now, if you have kids at home, you should, that's your like primary discipleship opportunity, discipling your own children. Uh, if you have friends who don't know who Jesus is, family members who don't know who Jesus is, uh, sharing the gospel, living in a gospel-fluent way, and, and being an influence for the kingdom of heaven, that's God's responsibility for you to help fill the earth with more people who recognize who God is and enjoy uh, his presence, to, to go and evangelize, to spread the name of Jesus. Or even if you have the opportunity, maybe as a life group leader, right? Or if you're further along in the faith than somebody else's, to actually walk them along and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's what it means to disciple someone, right? It, 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 whatever role in that process, it may not be start to finish with a single person. It might be, you know, some of you, God has gifted some of you to, to, to be evangelists, but all of us are called to evangelize. God has gifted some of you to teach and instruct and, and to exhort and to give wisdom and to help mature people in the faith. But I think it's for all of us to live out everything Jesus commanded us to do and to teach others to do the same. All right, we've got to keep moving. That's the first thing. Fill the earth physical sense with families and children, but in a spiritual sense with God's family and creating more children of God through discipleship and through the, spreading the gospel. Genesis 2.15, and the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it 
and keep it. You also see in the cultural mandate in uh, Genesis 1.28 to have dominion over the earth or to subdue the earth. And sometimes that kind of gets a little misconstrued. And people kind of look at that and say, see, the Bible says we can trash the environment. The Bible says we can ruin the world for our own selfish plans. And the, wor- the words there are to rule, right? But you can be a good ruler or you can be a tyrant. You can be a horrible ruler. And as kings and queens in God's kingdom, what God is calling us to do is to work it and keep it, to make the world a better, not a worse place. I wanna show you a picture from Bible Project. Uh, we don't know exactly where Eden is, right? The, the listing of the Tigris and Euphrates makes many scholars think somewhere ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern day, uh, Iraq, and you know, it's, it's, there's not like, oh, here's where it is, right? There are places in the Bible that we know where they are, right? And archeology span and all that sort of stuff. Eden, unsurprisingly to me, is not one of those places. It's like, a, you know, we, we have no idea. Some, some, you know, there's crazy also theories out there. Someone's like, the North Pole. It's like, no, Santa lives in the North Pole. We know. No. <laughs> But it's like, you know, there's crazy theories out there. But uh, anyways, the picture here, so here's the best we got, a Bible project screenshot from one of their videos, artist rendition. But it's, it, there's this mountain and there's these plants. So a, kind of a misconception about Genesis 1 through 3 is that the entire earth is a paradise, right? It's actually not that way. Eden is this beautiful, this place of beauty and almost like an untamed beauty. And there's these four rivers and they're flowing out of it. And in the description, if you want to read in Genesis 2, there's like gold to be mined and onyx. There's natural resources, but they're under the surface. And the garden is overgrowing. And you see what I'm saying? That it's this place of goodness and beauty. It is a paradise, but it's, God actually gives the job to Adam and Eve to take that to the rest of the world, to, to work it, to keep it, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. John Mark Comer says it like this. In Genesis' vision of humanness, we don't work to live, we live to work. It flat out says we were created to rule to make something of God's world. I love that line, to make something of God's world. And what that means is that the work that you do is not just like, oh, I've got to suffer through my 40 hours this week or my 50 hours or however much, you know, if you have a nine to five job or whatever that is. And then real life is what takes place when you get home at five to when you go to bed. Or real life is Saturday and Sunday, right? That, that this idea of work, it exists before the fall, before anything went wrong, Adam and Eve were workers. And you want to know who was a worker before Adam and Eve were workers? God is a worker. God, I mean, seventh day, he's sitting on the back porch, sipping whatever kind of divine beverage God (laughs) sips, sinking down. He's like, and he doesn't take a rest because he's tired. He rests so that he has an opportunity to enjoy his creation. I love that song, Waymaker. Even when you don't see it, he's working. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. He never stops, he never stops working. He never stops, he never stops working. Except for the seventh day, he actually did stop. But again, it's a beautiful song. But this idea that God is a worker, it's part of who he is. And if we are created in the image of God, 
Guess what? Work is not just something you do. Like, we're created for good. Okay, Genesis, or uh, Ephesians 2. We're created for good works so that we would walk in them. So in part of the redemption that we experience through Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, get to Get to work. Get to work. And it's not just the spiritual stuff. It certainly is. But here's how I would say it. To spread God's blessing. It's part of our purpose as human beings. Think of that, the the garden on the hill and the rivers spreading. And God says, it's up to you guys. Spread that throughout the rest of the world. That you have the opportunity to spread God's blessing. And you can spread God's blessing as a barista at a coffee shop. You can spread God's blessing as a plumber. You can spread God's blessing as a nurse. You can spread God's blessing as a stay-at-home mom or dad. You can spread God's blessing at a gas station. You can spread God's blessing as a missionary, as a pastor. There are so many ways, and that, like seriously, that you have the opportunity to treat other human beings with value and worth and dignity and to be a gospel presence in whatever God has positioned you to do. It's significant, this is why, okay, Genesis 1 through 3, it's significant by the time you get to Genesis 12, and a lot has happened between, uh, you know, 10 chapters, but a lot has happened with uh, the fall, you know, the fall and all, everything's messed up, and then God makes this covenant with Abram, and in that covenant, significantly, God says he wants Abram to have lots of descendants to fill the earth, and then God's going to bless him so that he will be a blessing to the earth. And the Great Commission, we're supposed to multiply and make more disciples, and we're supposed to teach people how to... So you see this, right? This idea of filling the earth with people who recognize God's presence, who are in relationship with him, and then spreading God's blessing so that everyone will enjoy God's goodness, just like the first two humans enjoyed God's goodness and his relational presence in the garden. This is what the church is meant to be doing today, to fill the earth with disciples and to spread God's blessing wherever we go. And yet, that, that's beautiful, right? And yet, war in Europe. And yet, COVID-19. And yet, racism. And yet, death. And yet, cancer. And yet, like, like I said, we see all the bad stuff, don't we? Very, very important question. What went wrong? What went wrong? There's another character in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I I, I referenced Genesis 3 a ton because I think it's so pivotal to us understanding the lies of the enemy so that we can live out the truth of God, right? Uh, And the theology of the devil, right, that's who the snake is, will not be fully uh, explored in Genesis 3, and neither will the theology of many things, right? This is, the, this is like first three chapters of a very long story that God has told over thousands of years. Uh, and yet, by the end of the story, it's crystal clear who this sneaky snake is, okay? Revelation 12, 9, the last book of the Bible. And the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient what? It's not a surprise, yeah. Should be no surprise is that we're talking about the same being, okay, who is called the devil and Satan. By the way, the devil is not his name. Satan is not actually his name. Those are both titles, right? Accuser, slanderer, adversary. It's almost similar to that idea of he who shall not be named, 
right? If your name is actually part of, central to your identity, it's like saying that, you know what? This being is so evil, we're not even gonna justify giving him a name. We're not even gonna speak his name. The deceiver of the whole world. So deception is his tool. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, okay? So that's who the snake is. It's the devil, it's Satan. And there's two primary areas of attack. The first area of attack is the enemy attacks God's word. It's an attack on God's word. Did God really say, right? It's a questioning, because God has made his, his holiness, his boundaries clear to everyone, and the enemy says, really? Are you sure God you know, understands the world? And uh, R. Kent Hughes puts it like this, three things that happens for Eve. Uh, because notice he comes to Eve. And this is an interesting kind of uh, interesting note for understanding this, that God gave the boundary before Eve was created in Genesis 2. And, uh, and so there's speculation on why you know, the, the enemy specifically attacked the woman. And I think the reason is that she heard God's rules secondhand, right? And by the way, Adam is, we're, we're led to believe he's right there. So he's like not like, oh, actually God didn't really say that. You know, like he doesn't step in, he doesn't lead, he, you know, so anyways. But look, look at what happens is for Eve, and Arkan Hughes says this, she diminished God's word, then added to his word, then softened his word. So in this whole conversation, um, when you mix lies with the truth, it gets really confusing, which is why social media is confusing, right? Uh, she diminished God's word. She says, yeah, we can eat from the trees where God actually said, you may eat of any of the trees. So even in how she's talking about what God has given them, it's like, yeah, he gave us some of the trees. It's like, no, literally every tree except this one, right? She added to God's word, when she said, yeah, we're not supposed to eat from that tree or even touch it, right? Remember the Pharisees making boundaries upon boundaries so it's more difficult, legalism, more difficult to follow God. And then she softened God's word. Instead of uh, saying, you will surely die, when she repeats what, what God has said back to the enemy, she said, you might die, lest you die. God said, if we even touch it, lest, lest we die, we might die. I don't know, maybe we die, maybe we don't die. Let's roll the dice. Let's see. And obviously, they, they take the fruit. The woman takes, she eats, she gives it to her husband, who we think is right there. They eat. Guilt, shame, sin, evil, all of that comes into the world. That's the first attack is on God's word. And then the second one is on God's character, an attack on God's character. Is he really good? Is he really holy? Should he be able to make the rules? Is he even the creator? Are you the creation? Maybe you should be the one making the rules. Maybe you actually are smarter than God, right? So it's an attack on God's character. It's not just on specifically what God said, but it's an attack on his character. God's not good and he's holding out on you. He's keeping the good stuff for himself. Victor Hamilton, Old Testament scholar, says it like this, in deciding for themselves what is good and proper and what is not, the couple are making themselves the final moral authority for their lives. Hashtag life in 2022. <laughs> this is the world that we live in. 
It was the original problem, and it is the ongoing problem in our world. Making yourself the final moral authority for your life, and in parentheses, and in a diabolical way, becoming their own god. Self is the original idol that we bowed down and worshipped, instead of being in a picture of God, a snapshot of God to creation. So we have this vicious downward cycle. I'm going to cruise through this. Sin. Sin. She took of its fruit and ate. Sin is, is, is breaking that boundary, going beyond what God said you're allowed to do, or, or actually failing to meet a command that God said you're supposed to do. Sin leads to shame. They sewed fig leaves together. Fig leaves are itchy. They're spiky. They're, it's not good to make... There's a reason we don't make clothes out of fig leaves, right? They sewed fig leaves together because they realized, you know, they, they were, before they were naked and unashamed, like an animal, right? I mean, that's kind of weird. Like, everyone's walking around naked, some weird nudist colony cult, whatever, right? It's like, okay, like, when you have little kids, you know, whatever, you understand that there's this idea of they don't even realize that there's anything they need to hide, right? Like, it's, it's not weird. I, for us, it is weird now, but like... It, Animal, you don't put clothes on animals unless you're one of those people who has like the little sweaters. Anyways. <laughs> Shame, hiding. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They're, they knew there was not just something about them that they need to cover up with one another, but they actually are scared. Instead of craving conversation and relationship with God, they're scared of God. Notice God doesn't hide from them. They hide unsuccessfully from him. Hiding, there's blame. The woman who you gave to be with me, right? Who does God speak to first? Adam. There's this responsibility, actually, right? Even though Eve's the one who took the bite. I mean, the greater, like, who did I tell not to do that to? Adam. Why did, why'd you guys eat, you know? And, and, he's like, and he blames God. You gave me this woman, you know? <laughs> blames the woman, talks to the woman, well, why did you eat? Well, the devil made me do You know, and it's just like everyone's blaming each other. So there's shame, hiding, blame. Ultimately, it's through the curse. You can read that in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. And there's specific aspects of the curse, uh, right? You have pain and childbirth, and then you also have uh, weeds and thorns in the ground. We're going back to our original purpose. Families fill the earth. One of the purposes, spreading God's blessing, taking the goodness of, of Eden and spreading it to the earth. Both of those primary purposes, our true meaning of life is now corrupted. Does that make sense? There's a specific reason why. There's all sorts of other aspects of the curse, right? You know, cancer exists, like that, that kind of stuff. But those specifically, our true intended purposes as human beings are now corrupted. And by the way, God doing this is not just God, you know, being a mean parent or giving some kind of consequence. Actually, what God is doing is he's saying, if you want to fulfill your true purpose, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. And the curse is actually going to drive you back to me. That's what pain and suffering are meant to do in our lives, drive us to full dependence on God like we had before sin entered our world, and then ultimately death, Genesis 3.19, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's what Ash Wednesday is about, remembering our mortality. Uh, we, were made, we came from the dust, and to dust we shall return. So just in a nutshell, that's what went wrong. There was an attack on God's word, an attack on his character, and then sin, disobedience to God, spiraled and led to all of that to the point where the next generation, 
Adam needs two sons, one kills the other one. Like things get out of hand very, very quickly. The end? Is there hope? Very important question for us, is there hope? The rest of our series, we're gonna explore the hope that we have through three more gardens that we see in the biblical narrative. But even in Genesis 3, God doesn't leave them without hope. There's a prophecy from God in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. I will put enmity, this is what God says to the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have to remember that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there on that day. That the Son, by him and through him and for him, all things were created. And the fact that human beings would rebel against God is of no surprise to God. And he actually had a plan before they did that. And the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament, really, is echoing this Genesis 3.15, someone's coming. Notice, it's not the offspring of a man, which is generally how, how lineages were recorded in Scripture. Abraham's son, Isaac's son, Jacob's son, right? The offspring, the seed of a woman, which is just, if you want to get into the, the technicality, it's like a weird way to say it, okay? The seed of a woman. Not the egg of a woman, the seed of a woman. And... So there's this son who doesn't have, who's the father, right? There's this weird, like, someone is coming, someone is coming. And throughout the prophets and the law and the rest of the Old Testament, it starts becoming more clear. We start understanding more by his wounds. There's going to be healing. Who is this? He's going to be, you know, from, from the tribe of Judah. He's going to be a kingly descendant. Eventually, we would, we'd call that person, this figure, the Messiah. And we get the advantage of looking back, and not just looking forward and saying someone is coming, we get to look back and saying Jesus Christ came. That's Jesus in three, Genesis 3.15. He's the, he is the offspring of woman, the Virgin Mary, without a human father because God is his father. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that his heel was bruised. There's actually nails through his feet, through his hands when he suffered and died on the cross. And he died, and in the darkest moment of history, when it looked like the enemy, the snake, had won, three days later, Jesus conquered the grave when he rose back to life. And he demonstrated his true, that, that true creative and recreative power of God in conquering death. And yes, his heel was bruised, but ultimately he has crushed the head of the enemy. Sin, death, the devil have been overcome through the gospel and the creative power of God of the universe there in flesh, conquering sin once and for all for us. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be your own God. You don't have to try to be your own savior. You don't have to define your own purpose in life. You don't have to decide your identity. You don't have to create your own who are you because you are who God says you are. You are who God created you to be. And today, I just wanna tell you, if you would receive the gospel by putting your full trust and full faith in Jesus Christ, then he can be your king. He can, be, he can be the God that you worship. And you don't have to worry about trying to be the creator, capital C. You can just be his creation. 
and you can live your life, and you can find your true purpose, the only thing that will ever fulfill you and lead to lasting joy and happiness, both in this life, and we also get hope, by the way, in life after death. And so I just invite you, if you've never responded to the gospel today, pray, ask God to forgive your sin, to lead your life, give that, surrender that control back to God. Live the rest of your life to worship him, to glorify him and enjoy his presence forever. And I would invite you to take that step of baptism. It's that step that Jesus commanded us to take. It's that new birth, entering into a new family, a new covenant with God. And you can find out more about baptism on our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. Let's pray. God, thank you. We want to give you all the credit and the glory for creating the universe. And in the midst of such a vast universe, you created earth to be our home. You gave us dignity and value and worth. God, we just look out across uh, other human beings and we see we are beautiful, but in light of the fall, we also see we are broken. We are deeply, deeply broken. And we need you. So much of what we experience in our lives is, is the curse. And we need you to bring blessing. We need you to bring new life. And so, God, I just, I just want to surrender my life to you, our church to you. I pray that we would be the people that you have created us to be. And we would see a little bit more of heaven on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.